the encouraging, the encouraging word is uh, something I intended to read from 1 Corinthians 15, given the, given the light of uh, today being Resurrection Day. Paul has been discussing the resurrection. And he's saying, you know, there's, there's different kinds of things. One thing has this kind of glory, and another thing has this kind of glory. And then he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. There's the Christian's hope, isn't it? I can bear the image of somebody who never died. That's, that's the Christian hope. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If I stay in this body, I'm done. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. That's amazing. It's a mystery. You're dead. You're condemned in Adam, but you can live forever with Christ. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Imagine those questions. He's tracking down death. He's asking death, what can you do to me? Where's your sting? Where, where's Everybody's afraid of those moments of death. And he says, no, that's written in the scripture. What, where, what's the problem with death? Where's the sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them then be steadfast, be unmovable and abound in the work of the Lord. Amen. We... We know, we know the time passes rapidly, don't we? Mm -hmm. you, you, you might think I was a fool, uh, uh, but at one time, I used to be able to see the gray hairs in my mustache. And uh, I would try to get them out of there. And you say, you're, you're a fool. You're a fool. It looks like it's almost all gray. Uh, but what happens to us all? With, with the young people there at home, you may have like we did on the door jam. And this person is this tall. And that person is this tall. And this person from last, from before Christmas last year, they grew four inches. And the kids would say, I'm going to catch up to you and I'm going to catch up to you. And everybody, or they'd say, no, you'll never catch up to me. But because of Adam, there's death on that wall. 
no matter how big, no matter how tall, because of Adam, you pick those grays. After a while, you say, oh, I kind of like the gray. <laughs> no, I'll leave the gray. But there's victory in Christ. We, we, can, we can proclaim that on the housetops. There is victory in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what age, no matter how many gray hairs, like my folks, you're 91, you're 96, salvation is right there. There's a victory. And he says, death, where is your sting? So as we look back to Habakkuk chapter 1, we were right in the middle of Habakkuk's description of the Chaldeans and how powerful and how mighty they were. We've taken some time. You remember our intention was, first of all, to interact with Habakkuk in his struggles that the Chaldeans are coming uh, to judge Israel. And also, we wanted to uh, develop, we said, our own plan uh, for dealing uh, with issues like this, the things that we uh, cannot understand that, that God is doing. Last week, we, we finished uh, with the Lord's answer as he says, I'm doing something in your day a work that you would not believe if told. And then he describes the Chaldeans coming in verse 6 and following. And we looked at the uh, pictures uh, of their equipment and the pictures of their horses in verse 8. Uh, faster than leopards and fiercer than wolves in the evening, their horsemen press proudly on. They're, they're like eagles. Uh, verse 9, notice how, how they, they all come for violence. That's, that's why the Chaldeans are coming. They're coming uh, for violence. All their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress and they pile up and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men who, whose own might is their God. You remember... You remember Nebuchadnezzar a, a number of times stood and looked at his kingdom and said, this is what I built. This is what I made. This is what I have. The Chaldeans uh, are the same. They are violent. Their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand and they attribute it all to their own power and might. Uh, David Pryor says categories of sin and guilt would not would have been entirely alien to the Chaldean mindset. And you, you could think about our day, the categories of sin and guilt, they're, they're alien to the minds of people. When we think about wicked empires, we can think, first of all, that wicked empires generally are short empires compared to world history. Nation after nation rises and falls in the Old Testament. The second thing is that a wicked empire is, a, is an evil empire, a nasty empire. And, and wicked is, as wicked does, people can't help all the violence and the murder be, because they are evil. They're evil men. They, that's what they do. They, they do evil. And then also no one discerns law and justice correctly because they're a law to themselves. And they don't discern what justice really is. But what, what changes everything for us when I see wickedness going on? 
what what changes things for me? What what do I look to? What do I uh, think about? Well, some of the answer is in Habakkuk's second cry. Notice in verse 12 of Habakkuk chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. What helps us in these times? Well, what helps us is to think about the nature of God and who God is, and that's what Habakkuk does. This is the fruit of his serious reflection and meditation. It's not just prayer shot up in a moment. This is a, a personal question concerning God. It's also an affirmation that uh, of his relationship with God and, and the knowledge of God. Uh, part, part of the answer to troubles is you, you have to have a right view of God before you're able to understand anything. And you have to have a right view of, of humans before you're ever able to understand anything. You have to know that humans are sinful and God is what Habakkuk says. He's holy. He's pure. He's perfect. He's God. He says, are you not everlasting? He looks down the corridors of eternity and asks God the question, aren't you from everlasting? The answer is yes. So it helps us in our times of difficulty, our times of struggle when wickedness is all around us, to know that God is the eternal God. The answer is yes, you are from everlasting. And then he says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. He says, Eli, my God. Jesus cried it on the cross, the same form. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He said, my God, you're my God. Not only are you from everlasting, but I serve you. We have a relationship. I pray to you. I look to you. I call out to you. And, and those things he, he is forming. And then he says, we shall not die. And he, he moves on to think about these other things. Uh, the writer David Pryor brings uh, uh, four applications, as it were, he basically says, come to God first. And secondly, he says, think of God's character. The third thing he says is, think that God is your God, as Habakkuk says. And then fourthly, he says, examine your relationship with God. It's, it's good for us to make an examination and find out. Pryor says we need to steel ourselves to come first to God in both private and public prayer rather than discuss the problems with friends and counselors first. Today, the abundance of human resources can subtly erode this foundational relationship with God, with the result that we come to him often as our last resort rather than our first response and our best friend. So he says steel yourselves. It means to prepare for trouble. Get ready. He says, steal yourselves for prayer and not look to secondary causes, but go right to God. Uh, as, as we said, come to God first. Think of God's character. And Pryor says, even if Habakkuk remained unconvinced of their vulnerability and their ephemerality, these talking about how the, the Chaldeans could just uh, come and take everything, 
simply recollecting the everlasting nature of God introduced a different perspective. How long are the Chaldeans going to be around? How long was the Roman Empire around? And Pryor's getting to that. He's saying, think about it. Nations come and nations go. The USA will come and go. China will come and go. But that's what he says. If you think about the everlasting nature of God, then there's a different perspective. He, he speaks uh, thirdly about being uh, attached to God and having God as our God. Habakkuk is affirming that his life and his identity are inextricably intertwined with the life and identity uh, of the Lord. You see, he's in trouble, but, but what is he doing? He's drawing closer, not farther. Well, I have faith, but now all these problems are coming. Uh, I'm drawing back. No, he, he's drawing closer. He says, you are my God. You're the Holy One. You're the Everlasting One. Uh, uh, Prior uses the, the, those two words, inextricably intertwined. Right? You have to think about it to say it, but that's what he's saying. God, you and I are locked together. I have faith in you. I'm trusting you no matter what happens. Because you're God, you're my God, and you're eternal. And I can look back in time and think about it. He has no definite reason for living except in relationship to the Holy One. That's what he does. And then finally, uh, Pryor suggests we examine ourselves. When we're driven to our knees by pressures, external and internal, similar to those faced by Habakkuk, we need to examine afresh what God really means to us. What, what does God really mean to us uh, today? What is my relationship with God today? I'm pressed with problems and difficulties today. What's my relationship uh, with God? In particular, in our experience of being stripped down to fundamentals, we need to ask whether we can look the Lord in the eye and say, my God. When, when I have nothing else, he says, I'm stripped down to fundamentals. I don't know where my life is going. I never pictured that these problems would happen. I never thought the Lord would do something in our day that no one would ever believe if they were even told. I'm shaken to my core. But he says, he says, we need to see that our response to that should be, you are my God. You are my God. He then has an affirmation concerning Israel. He says, we shall not die. He knows God is not going to wipe out uh, the Israelites. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Jeremiah echoes it when he says in Jeremiah 4:27, thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Chapter 5 and verse 18 of Jeremiah, even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. Uh, Habakkuk's uh, expression is an expression uh, of confidence. And then in verse 12 and 13, uh, he proceeds to, to lay this out before God. Notice the end of 12. You are a rock. You have established them for reproof. 
in all my faith, in all my struggle that I don't know what's going on, Habakkuk shines through and says, this is something that you've done. This is something that, that God has done. You are of purer eyes than to see evil. You cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see the continuation uh, of the struggle. Lord, uh, you have ordained it. You are, are, are the rock. Uh, the translations say appointed and established or appointed and marked. Uh, if the Lord ordains something, Habakkuk knows it will come to pass. The imagery of the God uh, as a rock solidifies this, that this is certain. He's everlasting, but he's a rock. He's a rock because of what he decrees, but he's also a rock because I can go to God in time of trouble. He's called the rock of Israel, my rock and my redeemer, my rock and my salvation, and an everlasting rock. All of these references are a comfort to the writer who penned them and to the people who read the words. God as a rock, in this case, is, has the coming destruction. It makes it absolute uh, and certain. Once again, Habakkuk uses his knowledge of God's character in his prayers and and that we can we have to understand that you, you you must understand who god is and you must understand who you are when people get confused with that they see trouble and they say well why would god do this uh, to people why would god let things like this happen to people and there's there you're falling off the two pillars god's pure eyes and the troubled prophet comes next. Can, can, think about his struggle. God's eyes are too pure, or they're purer than any others, uh, to look at evil. God's eyes cannot look at wrong. One of the writers says this is a, a, a classic statement of the puzzle. Uh, you, wh why is this evil? What, what's going on? There's a, assertions and a questions. The question, once again, uh, thrusts themselves upon Habakkuk's thinking, and he struggles with God's reaction because uh, there's no reaction, it seems like, and sin is unchecked. The ESV says, idly look at traitors or those who deal treacherously. Remember, this is his struggle. He says, that God, it's as, as if you just are idle. You're just looking at what's going on, and, and you're not doing anything. With injustice all around him, Habakkuk finds the greatest injustice uh, in God's uh, passivity and inactivity. He's wrestling with that. He's struggling with that. And it was the same, uh, it was the same uh, struggle that was mentioned before in, in verse 1. Here's all this injustice, and here's all this evil, and it seems like God is not doing anything. One of the writers says that God's Silence is as loud as his speech. And we need to understand that as well. As troubled thoughts are want to come, come back after being expelled. The, the one writer says, yeah, that's what's going to happen sometimes in our lives. Maybe you've experienced that. You, you are in, in difficult trouble, things that you can't understand. There's things that are, that are like, it seems like everything's falling down around you. And then it seems like the Lord gives some relief. 
that after a time, those troubled thoughts come back. Those issues come back in your mind because they're difficult to expel. Habakkuk struggles with that. These are supposed to be uh, blessings uh, for being righteous. And now uh, the wicked, it says, swallows up the man who's more righteous than himself. There's instances in our own lives that have caused us to struggle in this way. And we ask ourselves, well, I was mistreated or something happened. But, but what can we learn from Habakkuk's constant reference to God's character? You, th you, you think sometimes well, evil is winning out and wickedness is, is winning out. And, and we have to always remember Man is sinful, and God is everlasting. God is the rock, and, and, and he's my God. It happens in families. It, happens, it happened in Israel. We, we've studied Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. His name comes over and over and over again. And you would say, why would a king in Israel set up altars and turn the whole northern kingdom away from God? Because men are wicked. And then God said, I'm going to send punishment on them. And eventually I'm going to send punishment on Judah. And in our families, we, we've wrestled with it. We've seen other families. Why would this person in this family act out this way? Why would they go down uh, this course of activity? Why would they do these things? Why would they say these things? They trouble the family. They trouble their own soul. We still pray for those in our family who who are lost, who, 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 who seem to, to disconnect from everything uh, of the past, disconnect from solid teaching, disconnect from what they said was their knowledge of the living God. And Habakkuk says, I'm, I, I'm right there. I'm right there wondering how the wicked can swallow up the righteous. I'm right there wondering uh, what should I do? And then at the end of uh, chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, comes the picture of the Chaldeans as fishermen. Uh, God's part in the picture is, is mentioned in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that, that have no ruler. So here's another one of those vivid illustrations that was mentioned in our introduction. Habakkuk paints these pictures that if we stop and see it, we think about that. How many creatures are in the sea? How many creatures are there, uh, as he says, like crawling things that, that have no ruler? How many bugs are out there? There's bugs everywhere. And, and, and God made them all. But then he turns and he talks about the Chaldeans. God's made all these things, but what do the Chaldeans do? He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in the dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. What are the Chaldeans like? Well, they're like fishermen. They go out into the ocean, they throw their net in, and they just take whatever uh, comes. And God's made them all. But Habakkuk says, for right now, the Chaldeans are like this. They're like fishermen who throw in the net and they just take whatever, whatever they can get. Verse 16, therefore, 
he sacrifices to his net. You see the picture. The Chaldeans got that net. He's got his pride. He's got those horses that are so swift. They're like eagles. He's got those chariots. Their faces are forward. And he throws the net in. And it brings fish. And he says, that is a really good net, isn't it? I got the best net of all the fishermen. I got the best net of everybody. But he, he trusts in his net. He trusts in his own power. He trusts in the results that are seen by his conquering and his wickedness and his evil. And he says, I got the best net. He makes a sacrifice to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. Praise the net. Praise my power. Praise this. Praise that. Remember, we've seen in the prophets before. A nation would be conquered, and who did they say? Well, our God conquered your gods. When Nicholas preached in 1 Samuel, we saw that the Philistines said the same thing. We got your representation of God. We have the ark. Dagon beat your God. And God showed them, no, that's not true. After a while, they were like, get this thing out of here. Get this ark out of here. But that was the mindset. That's the mindset of wicked people. My God beat your God. Sacrifices to the net, offerings to the dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. And we saw that in Nahum, didn't we? We saw the picture of Nineveh, just full of spoil and riches and everything you can imagine. Because they conquered nation after nation after nation after nation. And it was full. But that's what they rejoiced in. I live in luxury. I conquered. I'm going to have rich food. I'm going to have all these things. You remember all the way back to, to Amos. You say, oh, that's a long time ago. But he painted that picture. You live in luxury on your couches. These women call and they say to their husbands, bring us some drink. Bring us this. We live in the lap of luxury. And God says that that's who they are. Habakkuk says that this is what they're like. And Habakkuk's question comes full circle in verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? He says, God, how long is this going to happen? This is what they're doing. You made everything. You made all the creatures, but look what they're doing. They're like fishermen casting in the net, casting in the net, taking nations. And Habakkuk turns it around and says, are they going to keep uh, emptying his net and killing uh, nations uh, forever? His question, his question rings out in our minds. We, we went through that same struggle and we understood what was happening with abortion and you could say god how long will you allow this to go on how long but we have to see those two pillars for some reason god ordained that but it's because of the wickedness of men and you say well i don't understand that but the one thing that we must understand about the everlasting god the rock is that all his purposes are right and he's just and true and good with whatever he decides. 
the erosion comes in our minds when we don't when we don't have that view shall not the judge of the earth do right that's the question and the answer is yes he always always does even when i don't understand even when there's another mass shooting like we mentioned last week even when somebody comes into your office and says a jet just crashed into the twin towers even when your whole world is upside down and you cannot see the judge of all the earth does right he's always the rock he's always eternal he's always sovereign he's always good he's always merciful he's always just he's always beautiful in holiness and Habakkuk sees that and then he sees the Chaldeans and he comes up with those questions how long are you gonna let them uh, do this and then it seems like just in time that Habakkuk comes to a place where he says well I'm resolved to wait then I'm resolved to wait and trust in God notice chapter 2 and verse 1 I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see not what will happen but what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint so it's interesting isn't it he he pictures to us that he's going to be like a real watchman a real watchman on the walls and they would say Habakkuk it's your turn to watch the wall it's your turn to be a guard and where where does he go he goes to the watch post all the watchmen stand at the watch post he goes to the tower they stand at the high place to to look out and see what's going on but he's not looking for physical men he says he says I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint he says he says I'm looking uh, I'm looking for the Lord I'm looking for the Lord to to answer me con concerning these things that are that are going on this is his uh, personal resolve one of the commentators says it's a wise man who takes his uh, questions about God to God for the answers and, and 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 that's the right way that's the pillar where do I go I don't go to human reason I don't go like he said to second and third or fourth uh, opinions about stuff I, I go right to God and I wrestle with God about the the issues that I have his personal resolve is to wait for the answer from the Lord he received the answer about the Chaldeans coming and he awaits further answers from God and one of the writers says says that's right it's almost like this is a conversation with himself he's he's starting to know I, I have to trust the Lord but I'm still gonna interact with him I'm still gonna pray but I'm gonna watch I'm gonna be resolved to watch and see what God says he patrols around and patrols around and looks until God uh, will give him the answer he simply expresses the spiritual preparation of the prophet's soul for hearing the word of God uh, revealed to him I'll be like a watchman I'm waiting for God to reveal more he watches with a purpose and anticipates we've seen this he looks to see what he will say to me he's got two goals 
He expects more from God. He expects further revelation to help him understand the situation. We've seen that in our lives. Well, that's like a partial answer to my questions. That's a partial answer to my issues that I have in life, but I, I want God to see more. I need a clearer understanding. And Habakkuk says, I, I want to see that. And then he says what he will answer me. It's interesting that he also expects there's going to be this continuing dialogue. That's what he started with. He started with his complaint. It used the word complaint. We talked about the uh, people that wrestled with God in prayer. They, they wrestled reverently. They wrestled with God's character in mind all the time that he's wrestling and he has these difficulties we've seen. He understands who God really is. That's important. If, if I try to make God accountable to my mind, that's no good. We, we talked about Adam's sin being, being put to every man. And people will do that. They'll say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't sin. That's not fair. We talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. Well, that's not fair. Well, it is fair because that's what God said was fair. That's, that's what he did. That's how he... Out You're going to die because Adam sinned. You say that's not fair. No. Does not the judge of the world do right? Does not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he does. We, we constantly have to go back and say God is everlasting. He's the rock. He's purer than to look at iniquity. He's holy. And he, he's my God. We don't profess and then say, well, I'm backing off on this one. Seems like the Lord's doing things that, that I don't really appreciate. I don't like this. But that's not what Habakkuk's saying. He's, he's full-faced in the realization that Chaldeans are coming and he says, I'm going to stand like a watchman. Because I need to hear more. I need to interact with, with God more. It's a masterful uh, treatment that uh, David Pryor has. And there are six things about watching and waiting that he says. We, we have to finish with these things. And you say six things. I said the same thing myself when I first studied it. Where did he get the six things? But when you hear them, you say, this, person, this makes sense. And the first thing that he said was watching and waiting take time. That is the, one of the most difficult things it is when we're in trouble, isn't it? It's that word called patience. But, but people in scripture and prophets have said that, Lord, how long? There's a Psalm that says that, how long? It's, it's common. It's common for us to say, how long do I have to endure this? How long will this last? How long will this trial be upon me? Watching and waiting take time. Faith and resolve are worked on and tested. You remember what James says. Manifold trials, what do they bring? Patience. And let patience have it's perfect work. You said, yeah, but I don't, I don't like that. I want, I want the perfect work to be right away. No, that's impatience. Let patience have its perfect work. Romans 5, what does Paul say? Afflictions bring what? Hope. Hope. 
and patience. And those things don't disappoint because the love of God is spread in our hearts. Second thing he says, watching and waiting are lonely work. So first of all, so first of all, it takes time, but it's, a, it's lonely work, isn't it? It's just you and God. It's you and God. You're, de- you're having dealings with God. You have to have those dealings with him yourself. Well, I have pastors. I know my pastors have faced affliction even since we've been here in two and a half years. I, I pray. I say, why do they have to go through these things? Lord, what are you working in their lives? They, they have the concern for the church on top of that. But it's lonely work. A writer says, most prophetic ministry pictures individuals out on the limb for God. A prophet is a lonely person. A Jeremiah is a lonely person. He was hated. We don't want to hear his message anymore. We'll, we'll, we'll throw him in a, in a toilet. We'll throw him in a cistern. Lonely work. Watching and waiting, thirdly, offer an alternative option. It's raised above man's reason and dependent on God. You see what he's saying? He's like, I'm not going to try to figure this out for myself. I'm going to watch and wait for what God says to me. I'm going to watch and wait for what the Lord does and interact with him. The fourth thing, this is a beautiful one. Watching and waiting, call for quietness. What happens to the, what happens to the double-minded man of James? Let everybody ask in faith without doubting, because what happens? He makes up a word. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, I think I'll do this. I prayed about that. No, maybe I'm going to go do this. Maybe I'm going to go do this. The, the, James says you're like two people in the same body, that you're unstable then. But, but it calls for quietness. It calls for us to cultivate inner stillness and not let our minds race through all these things. Amen. And he just says, I get awake and hear what God does. Fifthly, watching and waiting require perseverance. And sometimes that's what we have to do. Make resolve and make determination. I am going to do this. I'm resolved to wait and be patient. And then finally, uh, verse six, watching and waiting imply uh, being open to correction. It's an excellent thing. There's always an application for me and for you when there's ever any trouble or difficulty, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I remember going through a trouble years ago. Uh, somebody offended me. Somebody did something against me. And the pastor in his, in, in his, in his counsel said, did you do anything that caused this? I'm like, what are you talking about? They offended me. Don't you get it? The answer is no, didn't I get it? Didn't I get it that it was an opportunity for me to search my soul and to see? Look what God did with Job. All these things that happened to him. Friends just sitting there bashing his conscience to smithereens. You're wicked. You're wicked. You must be wicked. You must be wicked. And he holds on and he holds on and he holds on. And finally, God comes to talk to him. But Job doesn't say, oh, good. Now you're here. You can vindicate me from all this. No, he teaches him a lesson, doesn't he? Yeah. He says, um, 
when the earth was formed and the universe was formed, were you there? Do you know how to control a Leviathan in the sea? Do you know how everything fits together? And Job says, no, I can't. I'm bowing my head. I never understood all your purposes, God. And that's what we have to do. It requires us uh, to be open to correction. What will he say to me? Well, you say you went through those six things too fast. I couldn't keep track. Here they are again. Watching and waiting take time. Watching and waiting makes lonely work. Watching and waiting offer an alternative option to be dependent on God. Watching and waiting call for quietness and watching and waiting require perseverance and watching and waiting imply that we should be open to correction. Brethren, may the Lord write these words on our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for these wrestlings. We're reminded of others in the scripture who wrestled with you, who had personal dealings with you. We pray in our situation today, Lord, that we would see those two pillars, that Lord, help us to truly understand who you are. Help us truly understand who men are. We're thankful for Habakkuk and his uh, uh, teaching us many things. In Jesus' name.